You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 87, Canada in the spring of 1776. So last week, we finally saw the British evacuate Boston. The British, however, were still holding Quebec, and the Americans could not take the city. If they could not take control before British reinforcements arrived in the spring, Canada would almost certainly remain British. When we last left Canada in episode 79, General Montgomery had been killed, Colonel Arnold injured, and most of the army captured in the failed attempt to take the city of Quebec on January 1, 1776. Following the battle, Arnold, who found out about his promotion to general in late January, commanded the continued siege of Quebec from his hospital bed. His force of only a few hundred men was smaller than the force of the defenders in the city. He begged for reinforcements, but received almost none. Remember, at the end of 1775, Washington's army around Boston almost dissolved completely as enlistments came to an end, with no end in sight for that siege either. As a result, little more than General Arnold's tenacity and refusal to give up was keeping the siege alive. Only British General Carleton's lack of faith in his troops kept him from marching out of the city and crushing what remained of the Continental Army in Canada. Now, to be fair to Carleton, most of his defenders were civilian militia. The Continentals had captured most of his regulars at St. John. Carleton expected large numbers of regulars as reinforcements in the spring, so he was content to sit tight inside the walls of Quebec and await relief. As if Arnold's lack of troops and having to command from a hospital bed was not enough of a handicap, He also had to deal with the fact that almost all the officers under his command hated him. Arnold had made enemies of Colonel Easton, Colonel Warner, Major Brown, during the capture of Fort Ticonderoga nearly a year earlier. All of these officers had backed Arnold's rival, Ethan Allen. Arnold had actually physically beaten up Easton the year before, something I described back in episode 60. They had been under the command of General Montgomery, but after Montgomery's death, they came under Arnold's command, and none of them were happy about it. Adding to the hostile subordinates was the fact that Arnold also now had General David Wooster as his immediate superior in Montreal. Wooster and Arnold were both brigadier generals now, but Wooster had seniority, giving him authority over Arnold. Wooster also remained Arnold's oldest wartime enemy. Recall that the day or two after Lexington, Captain Arnold of the New Haven militia had to threaten to attack the New Haven powder house by force of arms 
to get the powder his men needed before marching off to Boston. The councilman he had threatened to attack was, of course, now his superior officer, General Wooster. Fortunately for Arnold, he still had a friend in Major General Schuyler, who was in overall command of the Northern Army. Congress almost took away this one Arnold ally when it removed Schuyler from command of Canada, replacing him with General Charles Lee. But those orders lasted only a few weeks before Congress decided General Lee was of better use in New York City. But Congress limited Schuyler's command of New York, and it would be sending a new commander, General John Thomas, in a few months. I'll discuss Thomas in an upcoming episode. For the moment, though, Wooster was the senior officer in theater. A big part of the plan in Canada was for patriots to raise local militia to fight alongside the Continental Army and overthrow the British. The Continental Congress never had the resources to send thousands of soldiers to Canada to overthrow the government. Without local cooperation, success seemed unlikely. If the Continentals had taken Quebec and captured all the British soldiers, they would have had better luck raising local militia. But as things stood, the locals did not seem terribly interested. The British had recruited hundreds of Scottish Highlander immigrants living in Canada, and these were the primary force defending Quebec. The locals around Quebec took no great interest in joining either side. Most were French Catholics who had lost the French and Indian War over a decade earlier. They did not have the same militia traditions found in New England and had never had elected leaders. Overall, British rule had been reasonably good to them. After France surrendered Canada to Britain, they retained the right to practice their Catholic faith, keep their private property, and continue their lives pretty much as it had been. The recently passed Quebec Act, which outraged the other colonies, benefited Quebec greatly by opening up the Ohio Valley to their control. Most locals simply wanted to avoid suffering brought on by war and feared picking the wrong side, which could mean losing their property and even their lives. As I said, had the Continentals captured Quebec, it's more likely the Canadians would have thought they could win and jump on the bandwagon. But the failure to capture Quebec made the likely outcome that London would send a large number of reinforcements in the spring and push the Continentals out of the region. No one would want to be seen as supporting treason against the king once the regulars came in and re-established control. The Continentals had made every effort, though, to recruit locals to the cause. When they entered Canada, they brought with them a letter from Congress entitled To the Oppressed Inhabitants of Canada in both French and English. Uh, and of course, if you want to read the original, there is a link to it on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. The letter explained that they came as friends to help liberate Canada from British tyranny. But most Canadians, as I said, were not feeling particularly oppressed. Things actually seemed to be improving for them under British rule. The British, of course, countered with their own pamphlets, saying, in general, Look, we just gave all you French-speaking Catholics a whole bunch of rights that you didn't have even when France ruled here. We just gave you the authority over the Ohio Valley. And now take a look at all the horrible things the colonists have been saying about the threat of French popery 
and see how they treat Catholics in their own colonies. Do you really want to side with them? And for the most part, French Canadians did their best to just sit out the war. It did not help that the Continentals had no cash, but were demanding food, clothing, shelter, and other supplies from the Canadians. Sure, they handed out paper currency, or sometimes just written notes which might or might not be repaid at some point in the future, but who knows if those things are going to be worth anything. Some Canadians started accepting continental currency at a discount to account for the risk that it might turn out to be worthless at some point. Rather than deal with that reality, General Arnold simply issued an edict saying that anyone who refused to take continental currency at face value would be considered an enemy of the cause and treated as such. After that, most locals simply did their best to avoid doing any business with the Continental Army at all. General Wooster had also done his best to damage any possible good relations with the locals. From his command in Montreal, Wooster arrested any locals who seemed insufficiently patriotic. Some he held locally, but most he shipped off to Albany, where they could be someone else's problem to feed and care for. In Albany, General Schuyler received a steady stream of prisoners, most of whom he saw as no real threat. Many of them had simply expressed displeasure at some of Wooster's policies. General Schuyler paroled many of these prisoners and simply allowed them to turn around and go home. It was Wooster's complaint about these parolees that made public the animosity between him and Schuyler. The Continentals did raise some local support, though. Colonel James Livingston of New York was authorized to recruit the 1st Canadian Regiment in the fall of 1775 as the Continentals were making their way toward Quebec. Although he claimed to have raised a thousand recruits, it appears that his regiment never really had more than 200 active soldiers during the campaign. But his claims may have given motivation to start recruiting for the 2nd Canadian Regiment under Moses Hazen. Now, although he had lived in Montreal, Hazen's sympathy for the Patriot cause probably had its roots in the fact that he was born and raised in Massachusetts. He had come to Canada as a colonial officer during the French and Indian War, participating in several major battles that helped push France out of Canada. He even purchased a lieutenant's commission in the regular army, retiring on half pay at the end of the war. After that war, Hazen settled in Montreal, where he became a prominent local government leader and businessman. By the time of the invasion, he owned large tracts of land around St. John and elsewhere. When Arnold first attacked St. John back in early 1775, Hazen seemed to back the British, reporting to Governor Carleton and working with the British to organize defenses against the invaders. When General Montgomery planned to retake St. John in the fall, Hazen visited General Schuyler to try to convince him that the British forces were too powerful and that the Continentals should not attack. While Schuyler listened at first, he eventually decided that Hazen was giving him false intelligence and had him arrested. When Carleton's forces moved against the Patriots, they abandoned their prisoner. But the British now did not trust Hazen either and imprisoned him in Montreal. In November, when Carleton had to retreat back to Quebec, 
Hazen once again fell into the hands of the Patriots. This time, Hazen decided to get fully on board with the Patriot cause. He assisted in the failed attack on Quebec in January 1776. Afterwards, Congress gave him a commission as a colonel and authorized him to recruit the 2nd Canadian Regiment for the Continental Army. Hazen had only raised about 250 soldiers for his regiment by March 1776, where his men were serving under General Wooster at Montreal. Now, I'm giving all this background on Hazen because he will eventually go on to become a general in the Continental Army and be involved in many other events, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. For now, in the spring of 1776, Arnold is commanding a few hundred men surrounding Quebec, which seem to be going nowhere. General Wooster has a few hundred more men in Montreal and is mostly worried about Indian attacks or local uprisings that may challenge his control of the region. Similarly, General Schuyler remains in Albany, responsible for the entire region, and now seems primarily concerned about possible Indian uprisings as well. Although the Patriots had forced Governor Carleton into a defense of Quebec, giving him no control of anything outside the city, there were some British garrisons elsewhere in Canada. Along the east coast, of course, British authority remained unchallenged in Halifax and the whole area around the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Everyone fully expected a relief fleet from Britain to arrive in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in the spring that would then attempt to make its way up the St. Lawrence River and break the siege of Quebec. The only questions were how large a relief force would be and how much resistance the Continentals could put up to stop them. Also, further to the west, small garrisons of British regulars remained in place in places like Detroit and Green Bay. While these small garrisons were no threat themselves, the officers at those garrisons were encouraging local tribes to consider going to war against the Continentals. For the tribes, war was an opportunity for plunder. It also made them valuable in the eyes of the British meaning they could get more gifts or favorable treating terms in the future. So the threat of Indian attack from the western tribes also seems to be a very clear and present danger once the spring fighting season begins. Following the January defeat at Quebec, the Continental Congress sent an investigative committee headed by Benjamin Franklin to find out what happened at Quebec. The committee arrived in March 1776 where they met with Generals Schuyler, Wooster, and Arnold, all separately, as well as other locals to assess the viability of continuing the Quebec campaign. In the end, the committee agreed with Arnold's view that Congress's failure to provide the necessary money and manpower made their victory impossible. The committee wrote to Congress requesting £20,000 sterling. Congress, of course, had nowhere near that much hard currency, they were printing paper notes as fast as they could, but they really had no gold and silver. When Congress could not provide the necessary money and manpower, the committee recommended pulling out of Canada and taking a defensive posture in northern New York. Franklin's committee spent nearly two months in the region. They came away with a good impression of Arnold and seemed to agree that Wooster was not really up to the job. During the months following Quebec, both sides mostly waited to see who would get reinforcements first. But Arnold did not remain idle. 
if he did not have the resources for combat, he could at least have his army preparing for battle by taking better positions and entrenching them. In March 1776, Arnold ordered a small contingent of artillery to set up a battery at Point Levy, directly across the St. Lawrence River from Quebec. This location gave the Continentals a range of fire that would cover Quebec's harbor as well as any shipping trying to move up or down the river. It would help keep Quebec isolated from receiving supplies, but more importantly, could fire on any British reinforcements seeking to relieve Quebec. Local French loyalists living in the area snuck into Quebec and informed General Carleton. Despite his concerns, Carleton was in no mood to risk his position by sending his army outside the city walls. Instead, he gave instructions to the informant to deliver to Louis Lenard de Bougeot, another French-Canadian loyalist. Bougeot came from a French noble family and had personally served as an officer against the British Army in the French and Indian War. When the war ended, Britain took control of Quebec, and Bougeot, who had been born in Canada, owned vast properties in the region, and so threw in his lot with the British. He helped to end animosities between the Indian tribes and the British government, now controlling all of Canada. When the Continentals invaded Quebec, Bougeot remained loyal to the British government. Under Carleton's instructions, Bougeot raised about 170 French-Canadian volunteers to attack the battery before it could be completed. Bougeot sent an advance force of 46 men to Saint-Pierre to establish a base of operations at the home of a local loyalist and militia commander. Now, because the local population was so divided, local French-Canadians favoring the Continentals got word of the plans and notified General Arnold. Not wanting to wait for an attack, Arnold immediately dispatched 80 Continental soldiers to confront the Loyalist attack force. Hazen, who at this time was still operating independently as a recruiter for the Continentals, also raised about 150 local Patriot militia to fight alongside Arnold's detachment of Continentals. On March 25th, the combined Patriot force discovered the Loyalist advance force at Saint-Pierre and surrounded the home that they had occupied. The Loyalists barricaded themselves inside the home, leading to a firefight. The Patriots had a small field cannon with them, making their job much easier. Both sides killed about six enemy, and probably about a dozen wounded on each side. As usual, the records are vague and contradictory. A few of the Loyalists escaped, but most surrendered and were taken prisoner. For the locals, this was really a family feud. Most of the French Canadians on either side of the fight knew each other, and many were related. In the end, not wanting to create further hard feelings with the locals, the Patriots released the prisoners on the promise that they would not again take up arms against the Patriots. Bougeot, realizing he had lost about a quarter of his force, the element of surprise, and the morale of his men, gave up on his attempt to take the battery. He had to go into hiding to avoid capture and arrest by the Patriot Army. A few weeks later, in April 1776, General Wooster decided that he should take control of the army around Quebec. By this time, Arnold had mostly recovered from his leg wound and was back to preparing the army for the spring offensive. Wooster, however, made clear to the junior general 
that he was now in charge and that he would not be taking any advice from Arnold. In frustration, Arnold requested to leave Quebec and took over Wooster's old command at Montreal. Some accounts say his horse took a fall, causing him to re-injure his wounded leg, and that was the reason for him leaving Quebec. But I'm more inclined to believe it was Wooster. He could not stand the man, and definitely did not want to take direct orders from him every day. The fact that Arnold did not leave Quebec in January, when he had a life-threatening leg injury, indicates that he would not just leave because of a much more minor injury that did not even re-break the bone. Wooster launched an artillery barrage against Quebec from the Plains of Abraham. The problem, of course, was that he only had a few guns, far fewer than the defenders. So Wooster spent a few days taking pot shots at the city, but clearly having no impact other than wasting the dwindling supply of continental ammunition. One defender mockingly noted that the attack only killed one young boy in his home, wounded one sailor, and injured one turkey. The attackers did set a few buildings on fire, but this in no way seriously threatened the defense of the city. After that pointless attack, Wooster settled in to wait for something to happen. Like Carlton, Wooster would not do much of anything else unless he received more reinforcements. As a result, both armies sat and waited. Next week, we go to London to take a look at how the war played in British politics and how war planners in London had decided on a massive war effort and build-up to crush this rebellion once and for all. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, and welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. For those of you who listened to this podcast in its first week of release, I'm heading up to Boston next weekend, March 16th, 2019, for History Camp. This is my first time going to History Camp. I debated going for a couple of years and finally bit the bullet. Since I've never been before, I can't say I know exactly what to expect. All the speakers are volunteers, so I hope it's really a gathering of people who want to share their passion about history. I hope it'll be fun anyway. 
and I'll be sure to let you know how it went when I get back. I'm also looking forward to checking out Historic Boston. I haven't been up there in about 25 years, and I'm really looking forward to reacquainting myself with some of the interesting historic sites. If anyone happens to be going to History Camp, be sure to say hi. I'll be wearing a shirt with the American Revolution Podcast logo on it, so hopefully I'll be easy to spot. And don't worry, even though next Sunday morning I will be on a bus headed back from Boston, probably annoying everyone with my snoring, there will be a new podcast episode release on schedule as usual. I haven't missed a week yet and hope to keep that streak going as long as possible. Okay, enough about that. Today's episode focused on the aftermath of the failed attack on Quebec. This really was the first unmitigated failure for the Patriots. There was plenty of blame to go around. The fighting between officers, of course, only made things worse. Now, Benedict Arnold often gets blamed for much of this, but I think there's plenty of blame to go around for others, too. Officer rivalries in the Northern Army especially were a continuing problem and would remain so for years to come. And this brings me to this week's book recommendation, The American Northern Theater Army in 1776, The Ruin and Reconstruction of the Continental Force, by Douglas Cubison. The book focuses on the American attempt to take Canada. It begins with Montgomery and Arnold's attack on Quebec, and ends with British General Carleton's recapture of Lake Champlain and his approach on Fort Ticonderoga near the end of 1776. Now, Cubison, the author, is a military historian, and he's written a number of books and a great many articles about military history. He's also involved in living history. His book about the American Northern Theater Army was published in 2010. Now, I will admit this book is a little dry and doesn't necessarily read like a good narrative. I also question the author's thesis that the Northern Army was a mess and spent 1776 reorganizing itself into an effective fighting force that would defeat the British invasion at Saratoga the following year. I agree that the Northern Army was a mess, but I contend it remained a mess and won Saratoga despite continuing problems with the command structure. Cobbinson's book, though, does make great use of primary sources to give an understanding about how the Northern Army operated. It's well-researched and includes lots of statistics to help understand exactly what's happening in Canada during that difficult year. Now, the book itself is a little under 400 pages, not including all the endnotes and index, so there's plenty of pages to dig into lots of detail. As I said, I've already recommended a couple of other books that deal with the Northern Army, and some of those I think are better if you want something that's a enjoyable narrative read. I think this book, though, brings a view that the others do not. It looks at much of the situation from the perspective of the soldier and deals with a lot of issues of soldier life that may not be considered in other books. Much of it can be issues of day-to-day -day security and access to supplies and rations and other things that might not necessarily be considered important by some historians, but are certainly of great concern to the soldiers actually fighting the war. 
If that sort of information interests you, I definitely suggest you give this book a try. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.